Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be finishing up this wonderful chapter that highlights the truths of our spiritual gifts that are what keep this church being the church, ministering to others, reaching the world, reaching the lost, building up the church, strengthening and helping one another. And Paul is going to bring the big picture of chapter 12 that we have been making our way through going back to last April and May and then picked up again last week. He's going to bring it to a close in summary fashion today as in where we left off last week, revisiting this idea of unity in the church, that unity can exist amidst diversity in a healthy church. In fact, it has to. Those things are um, not mutually exclusive. They're mutually dependent that the unity of a church uh, does not demand uniformity. We don't have to be united just because everybody is exactly the same. That what actually helps the church's unity is that we recognize as individuals we all play our part and that we all have a role to play as part of the body of Christ. We're not just body parts, we're parts of a body. And we saw that last week, that how a church can be healthy and fruitful uh, requires us to recognize the differences but not let those differences divide us. And that was the message last week in verses uh, 15 through 26. What divides us is when, imagine this, that which is meant to help build the body up, the individual members, become the thing that tears it apart by way of ego. When we let our own pride get in the way, whether that sounds like a, an inferiority complex we saw in 15 to 19, oh, woe is me, I'm not needed, I'm not as good as everyone else, and that's one form of pride. It's a little more clandestine. It doesn't just uh, out itself uh, by bossing everyone around, but it still has self at the center because it underestimates that it is God who has given you the gifts he's given you just the way you are, and you're useful, and you need it. And that's one way ego could get in the way of a healthy church growing. The other way is the superiority complex, which is, I'm so great, I don't really need everybody else around me. And I can kind of just, I know it's nice that everybody else shows up, but really I can just do my thing on my own. And that was in verses 20 through 26. He says, no, neither of those are the case. It's that we need each other. We're part of one another. And uh, we are not uh, about us individuals, we're about the collective we, we're about the church. And so that was what we saw last week. And now as we jump back into verse 27 today and go to the end of chapter 12 to verse 31, uh, we will see Paul summarize some of these thoughts and really bring all of his thoughts together into just a simple fundamental message. If you want to have a maximally fruitful church, I mean, if you want to be everything that God designed you to be, you know that old slogan from the army, be all you can be, join the army, in the army? It's been a while. Like, it was in the 80s, but actually it got rebooted and rebranded in, in March, I think I was reading, over the summer. They tried to bring it back to try to stir up those good vibes, but I, in reading about it, I was, I, was um, I guess, not surprised to learn that the ad agency that tried kind of rebooting it and rebranding it um, did so in a way that rather than the focus be on you know, be all you can be by joining the army, by being part of something bigger than yourself, serving others. Uh, their focus was to offer unlimited possibilities for Gen Z to discover their passions, pursue their purpose, and become the best versions of themselves. Um, notice the me, myself, and I in that. 
the focus of them bringing this ad campaign back, I think I remember first seeing it right around March Madness last year, was not so much appealing to this sense of service to everyone else, which is what prior generations, as some call the greatest generation, World War I, World War II, it's not about me, it's about we, it's about our country. Uh, this new reboot was focused on the person. Oh, if I join the army, I'll discover my passions and my purpose, and I could be the best version of me. Well, that sounds pretty self-serving. I mean, the irony is if it actually hooked anybody on that advertising campaign, they're going to show up and all about me and my passions, and they're going to say, your passions can wake up at 5 a.m., and your purpose is to put that uniform on and wear the same thing every day and do exactly what we tell you, the old bait and switch. Sadly, sometimes that finds itself in the church, doesn't it? When we sell the gospel that way. You know, the gospel is just all about you finding your purpose and your passions. And, it, and, it, and you sell it in this idea that the gospel exists for you. The gospel exists because you exist. Rather than the other way around, you exist for God's glory. He made you for himself. And yes, the gospel is given so that you, the sinner, can come to Christ, but it's not all about you. It's all about who? It's all about God and his glory and his bringing his worshipers, his creation that went haywire in sin and wanted to turn and become what? Their own gods. Well, you could sell that in the church with a gospel that focuses on it's all about me and what I get out of it. And then when you leave out the part of if you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. Those who try to save their own lives will lose their life. But those who lose their life for my sake, Jesus says, will gain it. So take up your cross and follow me. There is a whole reversal there now in how you come to the gospel or how you come to somebody with the gospel. That yes, within that, once you come and see your great need is not for you to discover your purpose and find your passion and your best version of yourself, your, your purpose is to get as far away from yourself as you can as a sinner by turning from your sin and coming to Christ. And then, and this is the goodness of God, then in coming to Christ, you actually find out who you really are and what you're really here for. You're here to be a worshiper. You're here to bring glory to Him. You're here to make much of Him. And you're here to use the rest of your life now because in eternity, that's what we'll be doing forever. That's when it becomes about him and not about us. And that's what Paul's been trying to drive home, I mean, not just in chapter 12 of this letter, but the whole letter to the Corinthians is, guys, you've somehow tried to make the gospel all about you. You've tried to make your gifts all about you. And it's not. It's actually, when we talk about gifts, these gifts are for the common good, verse 7. And you don't get to choose these things. They were given to you. God appointed those gifts in your life because he designed you the way he wanted you. So it's a complete abandonment of focus on self, and that's the tack that Paul has taken in his advertising campaign. That this thing is not about you, Corinthians. This is about the church. This is about God and his glory. And so Paul had to blow that up and make it very clear. And he does that today in three ways. Giving focus to... A fruitful church, and if you want to kind of think of this as ingredients, how do you see a, grow, a church grow, a fruitful church, bearing fruit of disciple-making for the glory of God, the fulfillment of John 15, 8? Well, you're going to see these three ingredients here in verses 27 to 31. You'll see a church full of people 
who understand that unity is their identity, that there is diversity in their personality, and there must be charity in their activity. It's about unity, it's about diversity, but it must be driven along by charity. And those three things are put together for us today to see. So follow along with me as I read, and then we'll jump into verse 27, that first point. Paul writes, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you a still more excellent way. He or she who has ears to hear, listen up. Unity in our identity is Paul's main thing that he is in verse 27 trying to make the very plain thing. He's been saying it in various ways and forms, and finally at the end of this chapter on the diversified way in which God gifts the church, verses 4, 5, and 6, varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects. But he still has to keep bringing them back to the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God for the common good. Verse 27, and now he punctuates it. You, Christian, are Christ's body. And even in your individuality, you're members of it, his body. This idea of unity is fundamental to the identity of a Christian. There is no way of getting around it. And that's what Paul is trying to drive home. That if we miss this point of unity, our church is going to suffer for it. And we'll be missing the fulfillment of not just the prayers of pastors and church members for a unified church, but Christ's very own prayer for the church. In John 17, was this. Night before his crucifixion, the night of his betrayal, here's who he's praying for. He's there with his 11 disciples. Judas has left the building. And he prays this. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these 11 he's referring to, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who's that? That's you. It's me. It's the church throughout all the ages. This prayer that he is praying, yes, for his disciples in the room, he says, but look, for all who would believe in me through what they say, here's my prayer for the church, universal for all time. All those who are going to believe in Jesus Christ, here's his prayer, that they may all be one. His prayer isn't that they would all discover their passions and find their purpose. No, that'll come as a byproduct. 
His prayer is that they, the church, may all be one, even as you, Father, and are in me and I in you. There's that communion between the Father and Son that we are to have, not just communion with the Father and Son and Spirit, but communion within the church, the communion of the saints. And here's the end to which we are united. This is the result. Listen to this prayer. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You want to know what's at stake with church unity? The very witness of the gospel. Notice I did not say the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is the message. We're not the power, but our lives, how united we are in this room, to this community, in this world, is either a witness to the power of the gospel to transform and change, or what is it? It's a witness against it. That's Jesus' prayer. That the church would be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that sounds like John 15, abiding. That they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that, God, you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. You think unity and love in a church are important? The testimony of the gospel hangs on it. Again, hear me loud and clear. I didn't say the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is in the gospel itself. That's the message that can transform a life. But the messenger, the messengers delivering that, if they see a life that looks no different from theirs, particularly in in, in, in response to the prayer of Jesus, if they hear somebody saying something about who Jesus is and how he changes and how we're now these loving people that love like he does, and they, they hear about or see or experience a church that's divided, that slanders its own members, that lives in a way that's out of step with the gospel, that acts as these Corinthians were acting, I'm better than you. Oh, I'm not as good as you. Oh, I'm over this here. I'm with Paul. I'm with him. Is that the answer to Christ's prayer? Is that going to move the world to believe that there's a God in heaven who sent his son in love if we can't be united and if we can't love? So this is no small thing, this first point, that Paul is making the main thing and is a very plain thing. That unity is not an option. It's not a part of an add-on to the menu of the life of a believer. It's bound up in it. We are, as back to 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, we are, you as individuals, we collectively are Christ's body. That's, That's the description of a true Christian, one who sees Christ's as what? Life. Christ is the head. Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the church. What, is that? what does that signify? I mean, it's symbolic language. I mean, Christ is actually seated right now in bodily form in the heavens. But he's the head of the church, meaning he's its life. He's its leader. He's its Lord. 
however you want to say it, to see it, that we don't get to direct ourselves down the path of life becoming a Christian. When we're in Christ, we take our calls from Christ as Lord. He leads us and he loves us. And we live for him and his glory. If you're not a Christian here today and you're going to be sitting there like, this, is, this seems like such an um, in-house message, this message on church unity and using giftedness. And maybe you came here actually interested in who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And then now you're hearing kind of like, you're like the guest at somebody else's house for a family meal and everybody's got their insight. And you're like, I just was hoping to meet some people and understand what these people are about. Here's the thing. What we are about is what this verse says very simply. We are Christ's body. We are in Christ. That's what a Christian is. A Christian isn't just somebody who says it by name. Because if you go around asking people what they believe and if they're Christian today, that comes with a whole bunch of baggage, doesn't it, today? Oh, I'm a Christian. Good. Uh, What political party? How do you vote? Where do you live? No, no, no. Here's how you define yourself as a Christian. I'm in Christ. God had a son whom he sent to this world to die for sinners. I've trusted and believed in him. I put my faith in him and in him saving me from the inside out, taking away my sin, giving me the righteousness of his son. Christ lives in me. And I live in him and he's in heaven. You want to witness to somebody with that and see what they do? They're ready for you to talk about, I'm a Christian. And they'll take that any which way they want. But let me let you know today, if you're not in Christ today, this is not about just calling yourself a name and affiliating yourself with a a party. This is about a supernatural change that takes a hell-bound sinner who is bound under the wrath of God to be destroyed and live eternally apart from him in hell, have no relationship with him forever. That's what's at stake. And to be changed in a moment by believing that he sent his son, lived a perfect life here on the earth, never committed one sin, was perfectly holy as we are called to be holy, fulfilled every law that God gave. That's perfection. And not only the law that was revealed, the law that says love God perfectly with heart, soul, mind, and strength, Christ his son even fulfilled that. And we can never do that. Never do that. We can't live perfectly. But the good news of the gospel is he lived it in your place. He is your righteousness. That's what you trust in. That's what it means to be a Christian. It is to say that everything I have is in Christ. And all the righteousness that Christ had by faith is in me. If you believe that, you're in Christ. If you've trusted in him, if you know that you deserve to die, and receive God's wrath. But now you've been shown mercy. And your sins as we sang. Have been thrown into the sea. Without bottom or shore. The, the sea of the love of God in Christ. Never to be brought back at you forever. That's what you put your faith in. That's who you put your faith in. Jesus Christ. The Lord. The Savior. If you've done that. Then you're in Christ. And he changes you from the inside out. So you could say all you want but it's what has actually happened on the inside of you. Have you confessed him? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Is all of his righteous life yours and all of your unrighteous life his and taken and nailed to the cross and that debt canceled? 
That's the good news of the gospel. So Paul is saying, if that's you, all those wonderful things you want to claim are you, then guess what also you are? You are part now of Christ's body and individually a member of it, meaning uh, you're not just out there on your own anymore. You're in the body of Christ. Christ is head over all things, the church, that's his body, Ephesians 1.23. Romans 12.5, we who are many are one body in Christ. You know, the amazing thing about this is uh, Paul is not, um, <laughs> if you notice in this verse about our unity and our identity in Christ, um, he's not commanding you to do anything, is he? There's no command in verse 27. You know what it is? It's just a reality. It's a reality. It's like talking about any, any law of the universe. Gravity isn't a command. You might put signs up to tell people to not jump off the side of something because gravity works. You don't command gravity. You just say, it's a reality. You're either going to live in that world or you're not. And for the Christian, he's saying, you are part of Christ's body, individually a member of something bigger than yourself, you're either going to accept that or you're going to live in what? Violation of it. By thinking, oh no, I'm a solo act. I'm the exception to the rule. Friend, it's not even a rule. It's just who you are. This is Paul's point in summary. You're Christ's body. So the only thing that explains why some would not live in this way is either ignorance or rebellion. Some come to Christ, maybe have... Uh, you know, I could see it happening. I see some college kids here. Maybe you're living on a college campus and a, a, a dorm mate leads you to Christ and the local, you know, parachurch organization like Crew or FCA uh, isn't a local church. And so you get saved on campus. And some of you were saved in college on a campus. And there were Christians on that campus that disciple you. But it maybe didn't teach you that, hey, as a Christian, I'm now part of the body of Christ, which means I need to be part of a church body to be accountable to and using my gifts and serving there. It doesn't mean you can't continue on your life of evangelizing others and ministering to people. And you can invite people on your block to your house or if you're in a dorm in your room and have a Bible study. You can still all do all those things, but you better be accountable and part of a church body because there is no existence for the Christian outside of that. This summer, I was preaching at camp up in uh, eastern Pennsylvania, the lesser half, and it was near the Pocono Mountains, and um, it was an evangelistic camp. It was a buddy of mine played college football with. It was his life's desire to um, start an organization that would bring in kids who are unchurched from inner city New York, the five boroughs, Brooklyn, Bronx, all those places, buses them in, gets sponsors for them, brings 150 kids a week to this camp who don't know Christ, who have no Bibles. I mean, I go there to preach and I'm like this, going to set up and I'm looking out and they got nothing. They're just there. And they are giving me maybe 10 minutes of their attention. So thank you all for your hour. But anyways, I'm preaching to them and I'm just preaching the gospel to them. That message I preached a couple weeks ago, Matthew 11. That's all it is, just the simple gospel. And as I'm doing that, I mean, it's, it, it's a joy to do that. It's the work of evangelist. Um, but as I was leaving, there was a guy that kind of, you know, I don't even know where he came from. He wasn't affiliated with the camp or my friend. He had 
heard about what was going on there, and he was, shows up, and he was older than I was, and he kind of starts asking me questions about what I do and finds out I'm a local church pastor and immediately goes after, like, well, what are you doing for your community? And I was like, How, um, I'll tell you about it. Uh, easy, you know? And he just seemed to keep driving at that. It didn't matter what we were doing in the church, discipling people, small groups. It was all about, you know, you're... You're missing the point if you're not just all the time out on the streets reaching people. I said, okay, so I imagine that's what you do? Just guess. He said, yeah. I said, do you have a local church? No. Why not? I'm just the hands and feet of Jesus. Oh, huh. It's an interesting um, use of words. You know, Paul would have something to say about you just being the hands and feet. As in you're a body part, but you're not part of a body. But see, that mentality comes in, doesn't it? Somebody over the course of time thinks, you know what, I'm just, I'm just a lone ranger. You know, I, I don't really need the church. I can be out there on my own ministering. I don't need to be held back. Paul would say, you may be a hand or foot by way of part, but you've become a disembodied part, a dismembered member. You're no longer a body part, really. You're a, a thing. You know, thing. Remember him? This is what Paul would be talking about here. I'm not part of a body. I'm a body part. Okay, you're thing. So stop calling yourself Christian and call yourself thing. And there, that's how you roll. That's how you crawl from place to place, just moving around, uh, only representing that one thing you do. A hand without a body is a disembodied part, and a Christian without a church is a disembodied member. It's plain and simple from the text. I have no switch here, this, this pitch that now everybody go to membership class. I'm not arguing right from this verse to becoming a member here. You may be here just as a guest one week. You're from the other side of the country. Whatever it is, where's your church? Who are you accountable to? What body are you part of? You may say, ha-ha, I might be a missionary. You don't think missionaries need to be accountable and part of a body? That somehow they're the exception to this rule? Well, no, because there's no exception to the rule. It's reality. A missionary that's going to make it out there on their own, in the hardest place, has a church or churches that are doing what? Supporting them, praying for them, building them up, coming to partner with them. Otherwise, they're not going to make it because none of us make it on our own. That's the reality of verse 27. You are Christ's body and individually members of it. So my question for you this morning, are you living in the reality of verse 27 or your own made-up fantasy? You're a thing. It's not a thing. You're either part of a body or you're not. And if you're not part of a body and you, you're, you're rebuffed by that and you dig your heels into that, why? What would cause you to buck up against the idea of being part of the whole? Being accountable, maybe? You don't like that, huh? Being responsible for others. Accountable to it, responsible for it. Yeah, those are things we don't always sign up for. But they're for our good because they help us grow. And then here's the cool thing. It flips right, about, right around. As you would use your gifts as part of a body, you're for others' good 
And that's how God has designed his church. Now, look, I've been the Lone Ranger guy. As in, in my early 20s, I, I was like kind of in that mentality, like, I'll go this thing alone. I'll move across the country. I'll move to LA. I'll do my thing. I'll find my passion and purpose. You know what God did in his kindness to me? He actually allowed me to move five minutes from a local church that I would have never found on my own that showed me what it meant to be part of the body of Christ, where, how to use my gifts, how to serve. I showed up there just thinking, you know what my gift, now back this is my 20s, but I had been doing youth ministry teaching and preaching and stuff. So I showed up to that church thinking like, oh, yeah, I guess this could be my church. So where do I sign up to teach here? And um, one of the pastors on staff who ended up becoming a uh, mentor to me said, yeah, you could show up when we gather next time for youth men. And I could really use some help stacking chairs. But, you know, my giftedness. Ah, That's what you thought. But let's just start on the idea of serving. Let's get to know you for a little bit. It's a check to our pride. But it was the greatest thing for me. And it taught me what the local church is really about. It's about others' good. It's not about me making much of me. So that's point one. Unity is our identity. At the same time, now look what Paul does. He can immediately pivot to highlight that diversity is in our personality. That unity doesn't mean uniformity. That some people are hesitant on this whole unity thing because they think it means uniformity. As in, if I become part of this church, uh, does that mean i got to start dressing like Adam, wearing a tie? Or... It has nothing to do with that. Nothing external. This is about diversity in our personality, individuality as individual members. We're part of a greater whole, but we still have individual roles to play. And so he highlights first in verse 28, hey, God's behind this whole design. You're part of Christ's body and God appointed that, but he also appointed in the church a variety of gifted people who are different. No two are alike. And that's where this thing connects. It's not, these things aren't in opposition to each other. They work together. Because this is how the body of Christ with these gifted people in verses 28 and 29 and 30, when they all are working together, the parallel passage to this in Ephesians, and you can turn over there to get comfortable because we need to look at Ephesians for a little bit. But in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, we see a list that sounds a lot like this one. He gave apostles and prophets and teachers. And over in Ephesians 4, 11, he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But what did he give them for? What was God's big purpose in this diversified collection of individuals gifted by one spirit? Verse 12, why did he do the diversity thing? So that everybody could be using their gifts gifts for the equipping of the saints so that we aren't just out there like my Lone Ranger friend I met just doing our own thing, but we would equip the saints in the body of Christ for the work of service. So now people can still be reached, but you got to take care of in here first. You got to strengthen the church first. Build them up for the work of service. And that's to the building up of the body of Christ. See how that works together? That's the reality. That's how it works together, and it doesn't work any other way. 
This was God's grand design. This was his perfect plan. That word God has appointed. We looked at it last week. It was from verse 18 in 1 Corinthians 12. God has placed the members, each one of them individually, in the body just as he desired. Paul uses the same phrase here. God has appointed. He has laid out. It's just a picture of, of somebody laying out in organized fashion, sequentially. This is how it goes. Now, my, what might have caught your attention in verse 28 is first, second, and third. Sometimes our... Um, westernized mindset of we hear first, second, and third, and we think of uh, awards, right? This person came in first, then second, and then third, and then with that, we equate what? Value. But that can't be what he's meaning here, as in the apostles are the most important, then the prophets, then the teachers, and then everybody after that. Well, that would fly in the face of what he just taught last week, right? Where he said there's no inferiority and there's no superiority. Everybody is equally as important. So let's take right off the table here and try and understand what he's doing when he's saying first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing. He's not ordering those as an order of importance, a value statement. These people first are more important than the rest. He's ordering them according to sequence, according to function, at least those first three where he uses numbers, and then he just abandons that idea and then just talks about different gifts. He tells you the order, the sequence God designed for the church to grow. Where do I get that? Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. When he talks to the church at Ephesus and he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints. You Christians are saints and you're part of God's household. So now he gives you architectural imagery, doesn't he? What's the first thing you got to do if you're going to now build the house? You got the design. You got to lay the foundation. You just don't start building on a what? A rocky foundation. You just got to lay a good foundation down. Well, this is the imagery that Paul's going to use in Ephesians 2.20. How's God's household going to be built up? It's going to be built on the foundation of the who? The apostles and prophets. And you always see those two names linked together in the book of Acts, connected to this is how God laid the foundation, how the church began, going back to Pentecost. That they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the mark of a true apostle. But then they were empowered for service and apostles and prophets worked together to do what? Lay a foundation and who is that foundation? It was the foundation of Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone. That's language for the gospel. That going out into the world after Pentecost was the apostles and prophets with the message of the gospel. Now, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 12 and see how the gifts fit in with that. How are people going to believe the message of these nobodies? Well, he's going to allow them the gifts of signs and wonders. And you see that in the book of Acts. In fact, um, just turn back quickly to Acts chapter 2 and you'll see that connected right there. That one, Acts 2, after Peter preaches, thousands are saved and baptized. Summary language of what the church started to do right away, Acts 2.42. They, the church, were continually devoting themselves to first the apostles' teaching. So, remember sequence, God's perfect plan and design for his church, the foundation of the gospel to be laid? It wasn't even the apostles and prophets' teaching. Only the apostles had apostolic authority to declare this is the word of the Lord. Now the prophets, 
They could go around after that word was laid, and they could add, as in explain it, like what I do, illustrate it, make it known. But prophets didn't have apostolic authority. It's the apostles' teaching. And then look what it says in verse 33. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the, who? Apostles. This is God's design for it. That first uh, layer of the foundation to establish the gospel into, with signs and wonders, attest to the power of God. Like I talked about this morning, the witness. Why should we believe these guys? Well, they say they met this um, risen Savior named Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know they're that close to God, in touch with them? Well, listen to their message. Ah, I still don't believe. Well, watch what they do. Wow. Those signs and wonders were attesting, they were accentuating the gospel message. And this is what Paul's describing here. He's saying, look, in a certain order, God sent the apostles, prophets, and then the teachers, third. They came afterwards, even after the apostles passed off the scene. They weren't replaced, other than, other than Judas was replaced by Matthias. You get that in Acts 1. But you know what you don't get in Acts 12 when James the apostle is killed? Nobody replaces him. There, there's no added apostolic authority to that moment. The only one added in later, Paul says, is what? Me, an un, one untimely born, 1 Corinthians 15. That's it. It's limited to them. But after them came teachers, and those teachers took that foundation of the gospel that was laid, and that message that circulated, and now they could expound upon it, especially once letters were circulated that had apostolic authority. So use... Um, 1 Corinthians is a test case race now, right now. So Paul's writing letters to churches. Well, this is around 55 AD, 25 years after Jesus goes back to heaven. How many letters did we have at this point? You had letter to the Galatians, letter to the Thessalonians, and you had this. You had the Gospel of Mark, and you had the Gospel of Matthew. Luke hasn't come along yet. Gospel of John hasn't been written yet. So you still need the apostles, guys like Paul, guys like the other 11 who are going around and doing what? Proclaiming with authority the word of the Lord. Prophets going along with them in combination with them, adding, adding explanation and adding practical application. And then the teachers could come in once these letters are settled and once they say, hey, only those who teach with Paul's apostolic authority can say, thus saith the Lord, but we can't take this and expand upon it and expound upon it just like Ezra did with the law back in the Old Testament. But if somebody were to come along and try to make something else up, look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandments. The apostles had authority. They had authority to say, hey, some prophet can't just come along and say they've got new revelation. Just like I can't stand up here today and say, I had a really awesome quiet time this week, sitting on my porch, drinking a coffee, decided to write a letter to the Church of Hickory, the Hickalonians. <laughs> and, um, you know, 1 Hickalonians chapter 1, Adam, an apostle, charged to the church. No, I can't do that. Nobody has that authority. Once and for all, foundation laid, gospel message closed canon. It's been done. Now we're just doing what? We're just taking this thing and studying it. God's given us illumination. We're learning it. We're teaching it. We're passing it on. But I'm not coming up with anything new. 
And so Paul, one, accentuates that this is the order of operations, but then he does throw in some of these other gifts. And he doesn't use, notice after saying third teachers, he doesn't use names of miracle workers or healers or helpers. He's just saying, and now there's these people, because these apostles and prophets and teachers could have had these other gifts. He's just saying there's these other gifts that are being used as ingredients for what? For the churches to grow and be built up. And to show that there's no hierarchy or order of superiority, he, he starts with miracles and gifts of healings. And you might think, oh, if there is a hierarchy here in verse 28, next should come tongues, right? Because that's super spiritual. But what does he actually insert between healings and tongues? The miraculous gift of helps. You know what helps means? Helps. People who are gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve. And then, the other miracle and wonder of the world, administration. Don't we all love that? People that are good at what? X's and O's. Connecting dots. And then he says various kinds of tongues. And we can't get into the mind of Paul and say, oh, was he trying to take a dig at all those people that really thought tongues were the super spiritual thing? I mean, I know nobody does that today, but um, back then it was a problem. Well, he could have been, but all we know is that when he lists these, here's these other gifts. He just kind of throws them out there. And um, right in the mix of signs and wonder gifts are service gifts, helps and administrations. Now, I'm going to highlight those because a couple months ago when I preached this, I already talked about gifts of healing and tongues and that stuff, so I'm not going to go back and revisit that. But he does add these two gifts here that he didn't talk about earlier in the chapter in verses 8 to 10, and I think they're very needed for us to highlight today because I'm 100% sure that this church would not be what it is right now with the lights on and the mics working without people who are gifted in what? Helps and administrations. My babies would be running amok right now without Zach Stone. I mean, if he wasn't over there keeping the children's ministry in order, Davey would take it over. He would be, he, he'd be throwing toys at kids' heads. He would be Lord of the Flies, anarchy, giving Cheez-Its to all the kids, you know, follow me. The place would burn down. Praise God for gifted what? servants, helpers. That word helper, it's just this simple idea of somebody who leads by serving. And this gift administrator, administrations, is a gift for guidance and leadership, and it's somebody who serves by leading. See how they're kind of compliments? The gifted helper is somebody who leads by their service. The administrator, and this, this word, it's used in Acts 27, 11, uh, when Paul's on a ship and the captain of the ship, the, the, the uh, shipmaster, the pilot, doesn't want to listen to Paul. It's used for us in a similar way in Revelation 18. Those are the only three times that word administrations. It, it could be, so you could put um, leader there, but leader who leads by way of wisdom and guidance, who, who isn't just a visionary leader, who actually can say, that's a great plan. Okay, so how are we going to get there? And that's why guys like Zach come to mind, or um, in our church, Holly, who leads women's ministry, or Cindy, who leads the hospitality ministry. They're not just gifted in the way they help things, but they actually have this gift of administration that they can, they can take an idea and map it out and then make it happen. So this morning, when I come in, uh, some servant uh, in our church shows up at my office at 8.30 with breakfast for me. 
It wasn't Cindy. But she has that operation running over there that when the band comes in to rehearse on Sunday mornings, there's food for them to eat. Why? Because in Cindy, there's a giftedness both of a motivation to, to help, just simply to help, to be a servant, but also the giftedness of administration to come up with the plan that that food is hot and ready to eat so that the servants here can what? Serve. And I think... Our, any church, our church, needs a reminder that these gifts of helps and administrations, going back to last week's message, sometimes we see these members of the body seem to be weaker, but they're necessary, verse 22. They're indispensable. This summer, what did I preach? Once? June, July? Right, next man up for the upfront. But if the team in the back doesn't show up, and the parking lot guys don't show up, and the greeters and the unlockers and all those people who do all these things we just assume are going to happen, I'd show up, and I couldn't even get into church. So we'd be outside, preaching in 90-degree weather. No mic, just shouting at you. You might be like, that'd be nice because you could turn it down, you know, my ears are hurt. But all I'm saying is that's this whole concept coming together here, that this is God's perfect appointing, designing, laying out how the church is going to be built up. And then 29 and 30, he says, look, I mean, you guys, are, are you not getting it? That think that like tongues, because that's the problem here in Corinth, going over to verse, or chapter 14, you think like you have to have tongues to, to really be gifted. That's the sine qua non of all gifts. That's the measure of spirituality. He just asks questions hypothetically uh, with a little bit of hyperbole in 29.30. And he just keeps saying, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets. And he just runs down the list. And the answer implied is, no, they're not. So why do you think everybody has to have this one certain gift to be important? If you think that, you don't get it. You're buying either into that inferiority or superiority complex that unity means uniformity. And there's some hierarchy. And people with the more pronounced gifts and the upfront and visible gifts are the most important and everybody else doesn't matter. It's not how it works. Diversity in our personality and the way we all work together makes us the church. And then lastly, after driving all these points home, maybe it occurs to Paul that um, he has perhaps discouraged people from desiring to be useful beyond like, you know, maybe the person who is like, yeah, okay, cool. I think I have the gift of helps because I can serve. But is that all I'm going to do? And he's not trying to maybe um, placate the pity party, but maybe he realizes in the hyperbole of 29 to 30, because that's what it is. You all met people like that when they're trying to drive home a point to you and they kind of put you in the, paint you into the corner of like, it's not this, is it? And it's not this, is it? And it's not, and I ease up, just back off. I get it. That perhaps in Paul's mind, he's like, okay, I, I don't want to be a wet blanket on this idea that people can desire to grow in giftedness and to be useful in greater ways. So what does he say in verse 31? but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Where does that come from? And then what he says after that, and I will show you a still more excellent way. He's, he's trying to connect an idea here. That one, just because he put on all these warnings about gifts gone bad, 
being selfish, self-centered. It's all about me. I'm not like them or I'm better than them. And then he kind of just puts us all in our place. And so we're like, fine, I will just not expect to be anything what I am. And I'll just keep my head down. He goes, no, 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 no. Earnestly desire, zealously seek for the greater gifts. And now you're like, what is it, Paul? The greater gifts? So you're saying some are more important than the others? Well, it can't be that, right? Because then everything he just taught up to this point is what? Contradictory. So that greater can't mean, again, how we associate greatness, importance, value. It has to be greater impact, function, that you would zealously desire, genuinely, he's saying. Look, just because I just said, look, everybody doesn't have to be the same, that you can't be zealous or eager to have some usefulness to the church through your giftedness that makes a bigger impact. That would be great. We should all be zealous for greater impact, shouldn't we? For the sake of the gospel, for the strengthening of the church. So that's what he's saying there in verse 31. I want you to earnestly desire greater gifts. And what could these greater gifts be? Gifts that edify and build up. Where do I get that idea? Well, his thought gets picked up back in chapter 14 with this debate between tongues and prophecy. And even in verse 5, he says, greater is one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues so that the church may receive edification. That word edification is the word for strengthening. So what's this idea of greater? It's about function and impact. It's not about value. He's saying to, to want greater gifts, to be zealous for more gifts, to seek them, to be eager for them, is to be so in love with the body of Christ and so working for its good that I really could eagerly seek these out and it's not about me and the attention I would get if I had those gifts. It's about that the church would be built up. Can you say amen to that? That if you, if you even are sitting there today going, yeah, I'm not sure where my gifts are at and I've never really thought of them on too deeply, but man, I really would love to benefit the body of Christ in a greater way. Well, then pray for that. Pray to that end. Seek that out. But here's the final aspect of a healthy church, second part of verse 31. In that earnest, zealous desire to serve in greater capacity, I need you not to forget the most excellent way to do it. And how's that? do it in love. That's what builds the bridge to chapter 13 about love. That he's saying, hey, you can be gung-ho for spiritual gifts. I don't want to squelch that. That, that, that zeal you might have to say, man, I want to be useful for God and for the kingdom. And he's not saying, hey, uh, no, we don't want none of that around here. No, he's saying, go for it. But how easily our motives could be corrupted, right? I mean, that's the whole reason he has to write this chapter. Corrupted motives of people seeking gifts for their own good. And he's saying, look, if you're going to seek the greater gifts, the key ingredient in in that activity is doing it in love. Because love is going to be the chief quality of that witness that the world's going to see, back to John 17. Colossians 3.14, Ronald gave it as our corporate reading today. Did you notice verse 14? All these things were to gather and to do and to put on, bear with one another, forgive one another, be kind to one another, be gentle and patient, and all these spiritual 
activities that come from the heart, fruits of the Spirit, verse 14, beyond all these other things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. See the connection now? That this church that's going to be united, even though it's different, how it's going to be held together is when we zealously, earnestly pursue the use of our gifts in love in love with God, and in love for people. How about that? We carry out the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the force of the Great Commandment. It's a mission statement of our church buried somewhere on our webpage. We used to say it a lot around here, but it just was kind of clunky, so we just shortened it to, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. But if you go on our About Us page, you'll see a statement. Hickory Bible Church exists to fulfill the Great Commission. Go make disciples in the force of the Great Commandment, which is Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Imagine how our mission is carried along by our unified love. Well, it's right here in the text this whole time. Isn't that cool about your Bible? That you just stumble upon these things? You know, I, I am called to be a disciple maker. But absent of being motivated by love, you have to come back next week to chapter 13 to see what Paul would say about that. But in summary fashion today, what did Paul teach us about church growth today? What was trending in AD 55? Our identity is found in our unity. We're one in Christ. Our personality is found in our diversity. We are unique through the Holy Spirit's gifts. And our activity is founded in our charity. We do it all in the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We do pray that our church, just our little localized body here, Hickory Bible Church, would be a fruitful church for your glory, disciple-making in the world, in the community, in our homes, on our streets, that's fulfilling the Great Commission. But we have to pray that, Spirit, your work in us would produce the fruit of the Great Commandment. Love for you, God. Love for our Savior. Love for our neighbor. Love for those we love. And even as Christ taught, love for those we would see as an enemy of the gospel those who would try to stand opposed to the gospel, but we're still called to love them. In spirit only, you could produce that in us. And you do that by this word working on our hearts today. So do that work, we ask. And even this last song, that it would further drive into our hearts that our will is to do your will, because your will is perfect, God. We want to do your will. We want to walk in your ways. We want to please you because we love you. So help us, we ask, in Christ's name.